Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamers official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. Nadia Oxford is on vacation right now, but I have an old friend joining me for his regular stint here on Axe of the Blood God. That is our old EIC, Jeremy Parrish. And you, you keep using the word old. I'm a little wounded. Would you prefer Gosh. US Gamer alum? Yeah, or friend of the uh, pod? Deprecated EIC? I don't know. We did an interview with Hajime Tabata a couple months ago that went up on the site last week as of the launch release of this episode. You've also got an ongoing series about the history of RPGs that have been really interesting. You should go check that out on the site. You will, uh, as of the release of this podcast, part three should be up. That's the second wave of RPGs. And so we'll talk a little bit about that and then we'll continue on to our RPG countdown. You can see what number 18 is on the list but okay are you doing a little casey Kasem song like number 18 no we haven't done that yet Uh, i'm sorry we're letting you down man i really am old although you know they still play casey Kasem countdowns from the 80s on different radio stations it's weird but yes i feel like anybody who's younger than 35 doesn't know who the heck casey Kasem is it's for old people he was he was shaggy okay folks shaggy from scooby-doo Anyway, so you were in Japan, you talked to Tabata, and Tabata is working on very secret things over at Luminous Studios, and you were trying to get him to open up a little bit about what's going on, but yeah, it was pretty mum. It was, <laughs> it was a little awkward, because I you know, said, you know, I want to talk to him about Luminous Productions and about Final Fantasy XV, and my PR contact was like, okay, that's cool. He can't say too much about LP, but that's fine. So I got in there and sat down with him. And immediately open, you know, just to kind of get the LP stuff out of the way, because I knew it wouldn't be very in-depth. And he was like, oh, so you're going to talk about LP. I see. Um, but it was like, I think there was a little bit of miscommunication. He didn't know I was going to ask about that. But fortunately, he's a really good-natured guy. Unfortunately, he likes me. So he was like, okay, I'll, I'll answer a few of your questions, but I can't go into too much depth. So I didn't really come out knowing that much more about Luminous Productions than I went in, but at least it's it's good to hear him actually, you know, give a little bit of explanation from his own mouth as opposed to just you know through a, a you know press release. I I've, the thing that I you led the interview by saying that he said that the name Luminous Productions, which is a callback to uh, the engine is not a coincidence. And uh, I, I find that, I, I think I found that the most interesting part of it. It made me kind of wonder, like, what the heck they're, like, working on. It sounds like they're experimenting with the possibilities of the existing technology and trying to spin it into a new IP, maybe? Yeah, so, you know, the I, I kind of took this interview and had to, like, figure out, what do I really take away from this? Um, because it's all kind of vague, but just kind of, you know, you put it down and you, you sort of like see what is the shape of the, the image here. So looking at his work in the past, um, I, I feel like Tabata has become Square Enix's fixer. And God knows they really needed a fixer last decade. Um, you know, Final Fantasy VI or thirteen was announced in 2006 and launched in 2010. And then Versus thirteen launched in 2016, 10 years later, uh, as Final Fantasy fifteen. So... You know, they they had a tough time bringing Final Fantasy over to the HD era. And Tabata, I feel, had the best track record working on those things because his first projects with the company were Final Fantasy spinoffs, mostly for PlayStation Portable. But originally, 
two of those, the third birthday, Parasite Eve and Final Fantasy Type Zero, were announced as, which was Final Fantasy Agato 13. Um, those were announced as mobile titles. And then once, you know, PSP started to take off in Japan, Square Enix was like, whoa, we should maybe not put these on smartphones, which weren't at the time, you know, really capable of delivering a full satisfying experience and uh, move them over to PSP. So despite that huge change in the process and the fact that Type Zero started out as a 13 spinoff and, and it became its own thing, he was able to get those games out the door more or less on time. And he also shipped Crisis Core, which is by far the best anthology of Final Fantasy VII title uh, out of like the six or seven things they made to tie in with seven. Um, and then, you know, Final Fantasy Versus 13 stalled for years uh, under Tetsuya Nomura. Like he just had, I feel like Nomura has a lot of ideas and is not good at necessarily guiding a project and making it just come together. And that's what Tabata is good at. He's good at making things come together. So in light of these things, yeah, it makes sense they would give him his own like studio within the company to basically say, like, yo, you've got carte blanche. You're doing great things for us. You saved our bacon. Thank you for that. Here is your reward. You get your own staff and your own projects. But, like, you know, he could just keep working on Final Fantasy games. He doesn't have to be his own division. So to me, that says they want to do something other than just more of what they're doing. I get the impression he's not going to be working on Final Fantasy related projects, or if they are related, they're not going to be like, it's not going to be Final Fantasy 16. It's not going to be like a spinoff game. It's probably going to be multimedia. And I feel like that's where Square Enix has had the greatest ambitions and also the greatest failures over the past 18 years, uh, 17, 18 years since Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. Like, they really saw themselves getting into the motion picture space, into taking the CG technology they harnessed with Final Fantasy 7, 8, 9, and making, you know, a movie business out of that. And it failed colossally. Like, The Spirits Within, I don't think it ever recouped its money, even after a home video release. And they did, you know, they did The Flight of Osiris as part of the Matrix uh, anthology. And that was pretty fun. Like, I, I enjoyed that one. Um, but yeah, their, their motion picture aspirations have not been great. I know a lot of people like Advent Children, Final Fantasy seven. I, I think it's very pretty, but also, you know, it's 10 years old. So it's also very old looking now. It looks like 10 year old CG. And I think the story was a gigantic goddamn mess. So that's not my idea of a great movie. And Kingsglaive, I think was okay. Uh, it, did, it did at least kind of fill in the gaps for the Final Fantasy 15 story, the things that were cut out of the story just to get the game out the damn door and not have it sit in perpetual development hell any longer. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like that's what they want from him now is for him to come in and say, okay, I'm going to work my, my get things out the door magic on Square Enix's movie division and make, make this part of the company's history valid. Finally, um, maybe I'm totally wrong about that, but just kind of looking at, you know, the company historically and the work that he's done and the thing he's, things he's been involved in, like he had a hand on King Glaive and uh, I think Hiroyuki Ito, the Final Fantasy V systems job designer was, was heavily involved in that also. Um, so yeah, I feel like that's kind of where they want to go. And already like his first project, not, I don't think it's part of Luminous because that's only been around since April, but one of the things he's headed up recently besides Final Fantasy XV uh, that he talked about in the interview is a CG uh, segment for an NHK educational program about like the evolution of humankind. And 
he oversaw a CG basically segment that showed it was very much like the early part of 2001 with the the you know humanoid simians not quite man not quite monkey getting their hands on tools and figuring things out um and it's a very nice looking piece from what i've seen of it but i i haven't seen it in english yet so i can't say like is this any good but i think it was called ah, it's in the, the interview i think cradle of life or something kind of skewing in that direction. So I feel like whatever he does, it's going to have, you know, it's going to tie into Square Enix's core business of RPGs. Uh, but it, I think it's also going to have a heavy multimedia component. I mean, it would make sense given that, say what you want about Final Fantasy 15 and the quality of Kingsglaive, but they made a gigantic multimedia push between Kingsglaive and Brotherhood. I was, yeah. Oh, right. I forgot about Brotherhood. Yeah, yeah the animated uh, thing. And then they had like multiple mobile games at this point. And th- they were trying to hit it from many different angles. And I, I have to imagine that they came out of that relatively happy because regardless of the u- ultimate quality, I felt like it did a reasonably good job of building up some hype and keeping it front and center with people. And I mean, he uh, directed all of that ultimately with Final Fantasy 15. So I wouldn't be surprised if they said do that, but on a greater scale with a new IP, because we can't keep really relying on Dragon Quest Final Fantasy and Kingdom Hearts. Right. I'm sure they would love a new IP that is even, you know, a fraction as big as Dragon Quest or Final Fantasy. And I feel like he's the person to do that. Uh, this is all speculation, but I mean, you have to wonder if the Jap- Japanese side is looking over at the Western side and going and seeing the success that they've had with, say, Tomb Raider and such, and going, guys, uh, this is embarrassing. We need, like, all of the big games are coming out from over there. We need to step up our game. So, can we get Alicia Vikander to play Lightning? Is that the Final Fantasy thirteen movie? Is that is that what's going to happen? Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And you know, multimedia has always been kind of big on Square's mind. Uh, like I said, since Final Fantasy seven, and then Spirits Within, and even you know, um, throughout like the last decade, two thousand four, two thousand five, the aughts, um, they talked about their polymorphic content, and they wanted to create you know their multiple pillars of the company and so on and so forth. And that's what the final fantasy seven anthology was supposed to be. And, you know, varying degrees of success there. Um, but I feel like they, they've seen great results from Tabata and, you know, final fantasy seven or 15 is now sold nearly 8 million copies. So clearly I don't think they're disappointed in, in how that came out. So I'll be interested to interested to see what he does, but you know, one thing I think he really has going for him with Luminous Productions is it does sound like he's not going to be working on Final Fantasy projects. So I think that's that's really like I, that's what what we haven't really seen before is for Tabata to step out and create a project from scratch without you know the burdens of expectation, without having to deal with the albatross of someone else's ideas or you know ten years of development work on an RPG that went nowhere. Like Final Fantasy 15 is kind of a mess, but understandably so. The fact that it even got out the door—that's amazing because it was it was mired in in just despair for they years. They had so many weird ideas, and I'm sure that they said, "Well, 
put your own spin on it, but please don't go too far away from what was originally conceived. He was like, all right, <laughs> good luck. Yeah, I, I mean, he had to rework some things, and there are some fans who are very salty about the fact that Stella became Luna, mm. and it's basically a different character. And was like, and they're like, you replaced the, the woman. Game. Yeah, and like, okay, that's not great, but, you know, I think the alternative would be that the game would still be in development. If he was beholden to just the scattered ideas that Nomura put down on paper and, you know, teased out, like, could that have ever actually come to fruition? He had to make some cuts, but there was still like a very heavy uh, anchor around his neck in the, in the form of, you know, like, here's all this stuff we have that we've put out and we have to keep it pretty close to this because this is what fans have been teased with for years and years. So they expect this. So I feel like, Final Fantasy 15 must have been a thankless job. And like the fact that he's still this good natured guy who's like super easy to get along with <laughs> that game didn't break him. So he can, he can do anything. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what he comes up with uh, when he's not burdened with the Final Fantasy brand or with um, Tetsuya Nomura's project where he's like, mm, maybe I'm going to make this into a musical like Les Miserables. Uh, he can just do his own thing. And that's that's interesting to me. I, like I said, I'm, I'm looking forward to see what he comes up with. Maybe it'll be great, maybe not, but at least it will be something fresh and different, which, you know, every company needs to come up with those. Congratulations. You sold, you got Final Fantasy 15 out the door and it wasn't a complete disaster. Your reward is you are free. You don't have to work <laughs> on this anymore. That's right. You could do yeah. what you want. Freedom, and I, I hope he goes full Hideo Kojima, opens up uh, his own branch in Culver City uh, with like a movie screen and everything. Finds some second tier Hollywood person to hang out with all the time. <laughs> takes up, uh, takes tons of money over the course of ten years. Uh, I, I feel like he's earned this prize. <laughs> yeah, but I would actually like for him not to do that and just you know, just get about doing his business, run the studio, make great stuff. Uh, Kojima, yeah, he he was all over the place too, kind of kind of like Nomura. Um, I I don't know. I went out to the, the 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 groundbreaking or not the groundbreaking, the grand opening of Kojima's Hollywood studio, and that was fun. I'm glad I had that experience, but um, I think I would rather you know see people not get caught up in boondoggles like that. God knows, Square Enix has had enough boondoggles. Maybe just some good quality output. That would be great. Yeah. Uh, last thought on Tabata. That I was thinking about when they were marketing final when they were marketing Final Fantasy fifteen, and I was thinking about how they were doing like lots of little social media videos, having the camera going around the office and people, uh, the developers holding up the little chocobos and going on about how they weren't going to let Final Fantasy die. And it occurred to me that that was like the most open I've seen the Japanese side of Square Enix actually be about the development of one of their games. When you think about like what they're doing with Kingdom Hearts 3, where you had three three showings of the same trailer at E3, uh, they might wheel out Nomura to do an interview, but otherwise it's basically a black box. You don't know what's going mm -hmm. on in there. Well, I mean, that is that is why I think they wanted him in charge of Luminous Productions, because he is a very like new new wave Japanese developer. He doesn't come from the very sort of stuffy, reserved old guard where everything is very secretive and everything is very private. 
you know, there, there are a lot of devs coming out of Japan these days who are much more like that. And you don't see a lot of them at big corporations. So having him in a position of authority at a studio as large as Square Enix, I think is great because it, it will help them to, you know, I think be more competitive and live up to expectations of audiences outside of Japan. And, you know, I'm not saying like Japanese companies have to cater to other people. Uh, but the real, the reality is that that society is aging rapidly and it's aging out of its love of video games. Um, so, you know, I think for a company to stay active in, in that space, just, you know, logistically speaking, just because there's not that much of an audience uh, remaining over there uh, outside of like Switch, mobile, and 3DS. Um, yeah, I feel like I feel like that's something that they need to embrace. And the fact that they've given this much authority to Tabata to me says like, yeah, they they get it, and um, they're they're okay having you know at least an aspect of the company have that more kind of open, uh, less secretive approach. All right. Okay. Let's continue on to your other projects that you have ongoing and US Gamer. Uh, the last time you were on the show, I think you were here, I mean, in addition to talking about Tactics Ogre, which was number 24 in our top 25 RPG countdown, you were also talking about part one of your History of RPG series, which was your conversation with Richard Garriott. And we were talking about Ultima and his initial forays into that and his connections to Dungeons and Dragons. For part two, you dove into wizardry, and you talked to Robert Woodhead, who is one of the co-designers of the game, and you spend a lot of time talking about a thing called Play-Doh, and I was wondering if you could kind of explain that for the people listening to this podcast who don't really know what that is. Well, I don't have any personal experience with Play-Doh, so I only know pretty much what, what Robert told me, um, which is that it was a large distributed computing system that existed I think it was based at the University of Champaign-Urbana in Chicago. Um, it, it was like run from the ni- like 1970 to 1975. And the idea behind that was basically to create a shared academic computing space that was networked with Plato centers across the, com- uh, the country. And everyone who used a Plato system was all connected to the same network and had like shared computing resources. It was really, really, really advanced for its time. Uh, It was a very powerful piece of hardware uh, that powered it. The individual terminals, he said, were like plasma screens with 512 by 512 resolution, which is crazy for 1975. So yeah, it was was, um, primarily used for academics, but of course, anytime you get people together sharing computers, they're going to figure out how to use it for games. And so a lot of um, sort of shared network game experiences came out of Plato. Really, I mean, if I knew more about Plato, I probably would have uh, made an ep- like an entry in this art evolution of RPG series about Plato games. But those are very hard to find information on because it was this sort of distributed system. And it's not like there's an archive of Plato games, at least not that I've been able to find anywhere out there. But, you know, this was around the time that Lord of the Rings was exploding in popularity in dorm rooms across America. And uh, at the same time, you also had D&D exploding in popularity in dorm rooms across America. So naturally, people started to gravitate toward the idea of 
creating, you know, early multi-user dungeons and things like that. So a lot of, a lot of elements of tabletop RPGs were first distilled into computer form through Plato. And that was the experience that Robert Woodhead came out of, and also Andrew Greenberg, his partner at Surtech, who co-designed Wizardry with him. So they, they developed a computer RPG that really drew heavily from what they did with Plato. But, you know, they were working on Apple, too. So you've got a dinky little microcomputer that sits on your desktop versus a massive shared interlinked brain spread across the country. So they didn't have the multiplayer option. They didn't have, you know, the high resolution. They didn't have the processing power. They didn't have the effectively unlimited storage space. So they had to make an RPG work within those boundaries. And so a lot of what you see in modern RPGs was funneled from D&D through Plato by way of wizardry. And then the compromises that they made for wizardry ended up kind of disseminating into the role-playing genre as a whole, because wizardry was so influential both in the West and in Japan. Yeah, the, uh, just uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, roguelikes kind of got their start on a similar sorts of uh, uh, platforms in universities. Yeah, um, if I'm not mistaken, roguelikes, you know, rogue, um, that happened around the same time as wizardry. It was like 81-ish. Yeah, and um, yeah, so that wasn't actually happening on Plato, but it was happening on um, Vax type machines, you know, a virtual access where you have a dumb terminal that is not a computer. It's just a like a screen and a keyboard that's connected into a shared system. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a, like a smaller scale version of what Plato was uh, much more limited. That's why Rogue was just ASCII graphics instead of actual graphics, because all you had was like, you know, type to work with on your, your dumb terminal. Um, but the idea that was there of, of having this sort of asynchronous shared space, you couldn't play together and go exploring with other players, but what you could do is uh, venture into spaces that other players had been in in their own sessions, and you could see signs of other people who had played, like in the, in the form of Rogue, uh, or in Rogue, that took the form of tombstones for adventurers who fell along the way so you would see like their stats when they died um it it was you know it was very different from a tabletop session where it's four people banded together to you know throw a magic missile on a dragon uh but the idea of this sort of communal experience was definitely there and uh you know even rogue could enjoy that whereas that was something that still wasn't available to wizardry um you didn't really see any sort of communal element to wizardry until wizardry 4 where you play the villain trying to escape from the dungeon and Surtech, the developer had people send in their parties from wizardry one through three. And they would put those parties like the, the players characters into wizardry four as, as basically random encounters that they would have to fight. Uh, and it has a reputation for being one of the hardest video games ever, uh, probably because you had like God tier parties of six people and you're like a fragile little wizard who can only fight by summoning monsters and you know like those are the same monsters that the parties are you know they're, they're kicking the monsters asses so it's a an interesting kind of inversion of the social element wizardry of course one of the most influential rpgs ever made you alluded to its massive <clears throat> influence on both the west and the east of course uh dragon quest famously inspired in part by ultima and in part by wizardry and you'll be 
getting to that on the next part of your entry. Um, yep. And of course, Etri and Odyssey, Shimagami Tensei, also games that drew from wizardry. And it was so popular in Japan that uh, Japanese companies picked it up and continued on for many years. Yeah, there have been more Japanese-developed uh, wizardry games than there were games developed by Surtek. Surtek got up to Wizardry 8, and then the company collapsed, um, which is a shame, because Wiz- Wizardry 8 has a reputation for being one of the greatest RPGs ever made. Uh, I think it just showed up on Twitch Prime. Like, it's a game you can download for free on Twitch Prime as of this week. I just saw it mentioned, like, last night. So... If you are interested in experiencing a classic RPG from like 1999 that apparently is a uh, paragon of the medium, you should check that out. Uh, but yeah, like um, there there have been all kinds of spinoffs and guidance and uh, games that are wizardry in spirit, but not actually. Um, like the classic heroes games actually have some concrete connection to wizardry. Um, and there's, there are a few developers who basically just create wizardry clones. That's what they do. And there's a bunch of them that have made it to the U S on, especially on PS Vita, um, a bunch of the ones by five PD, like, uh, new, oh crap. I can't remember their names, but it's like new Tokyo apocalypse or something like that. Um, and all of them are very much in the wizardry vein. Like they're super hard when you start out and they never really get easier. I think there's a bedrock appeal to a game like wizardry which is it's a dungeon crawler and we'll get into this a bit in the next segment as well with our rpg countdown spoiler alert it is also a dungeon crawler but of a different sort and i mean there's a kind of two parts of dungeons and dragons one part was historically kind of you you created your character and you were doing some light role playing but the meat of the game is rolling the dice and seeing if you kill the monster in the dungeon, right? And wizardry and games like that really tie, take that one part and just tie into it so well and make it something that's honestly pretty timeless in the RPG genre. Yeah, I feel like there are a few different pillars to, you know, the D&D experience. There's the social element, there's the story element, and there's the combat and exploration element. And wizardry just focused in on the combat and exploration. Um, whereas if you look at something like Zork, you could consider that an RPG. It's got stats in, in the form of points. And you're like, as you earn more points, you become stronger and are able to survive the few game, the, the few encounters in the game. Uh, but that was very much about story and, you know, kind of exploration through narrative. Um, you know, then you have Ultima that was sort of in between the two. But yeah, the, 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 the super combat focused approach does have merit and it does have a certain appeal. And for my money, the best wizardry derivative ever made is the Etrian Odyssey series. Like it just, it takes everything about the, the dungeon crawler, you know, the, the very, very light story focused dungeon crawler and just makes it so refined. And gives you so much empowerment, but at the same time, it's still very, very challenging. And then continuing on from Wizardry, uh, you talk about the second wave of RPGs. And you hold up the Bard's Tale, and you focus a lot on the Bard's Tale. Ultimately, the, the definition that I settle on is that the people who created the second wave of RPGs 
didn't have the same formative experiences as Richard Garriott and Robert Woodhead. They didn't play, you know, Plato games. They weren't, they didn't have a background in academic computing. The first experiences they had with RPGs were D and D, but also playing those commercial products, wizardry and Ultima and that sort of thing, you know, temples, Upshy, like that was their formative experience with RPGs. So now they were, they were one, step one generation removed from sort of the the seminal source of RPGs. Um, if you look at, you know, academic computing in the 70s, and it's very direct connection and evolution from D&D, now you were, you were moving away from that. You had people whose first experience with a computer RPG was, you know, uh, trying to figure out the moon gates of Sosaria in Ultima 3 or, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to get past the teleporter maze in Wizardry. And that was their reference point. So, you know, immediately you're going to have games that had different perspectives, you know, creators who had different aspirations and goals with the, what they were doing because they weren't trying to necessarily recreate the the social experience of D&D or, you know, the, the sort of networked community of Plato. They were saying, well, I really like wizardry. It's really good, but I wonder what I could do differently. So they were building off of, you know, the first generation of RPGs. And I feel like that's really, that's really what defines the, the idea of waves. And I guess beyond that, it gets kind of muddy because you had people who were still inspired by wizardry creating games, you know, long into the future. But I do feel like there is a, a sort of heavy demarcation between the original Ultima trilogy and wizardry and everything that came after that was really sort of patterned after those two games. Yeah, I always like Bard's Tale because, I mean, first of all, it looks much better than wizard uh, than Wizardry. Uh, the graphics are really nice. In, in fact, I think an HD version is coming out relatively soon. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It may even be out now. Um, I think you're right. I could, I could. I don't know. I haven't read up on that. I saw Brian Fargo tweeting about it uh, the other day. So uh, that was it, it. Was the game that more or less gave us buffs as we understand them in modern day terms because i mean it's about a bard right and the bard sings songs to make the characters in your party stronger and it uh did you have a chance to play the new one the the reboot that's coming out i uh, no, i didn't oh it's it's really gorgeous the problem was that brian fargo for a long time did not have the rights uh to bard's tale um they made an action game in the mid 2000s that did not have a ton in common um with the original thing it came out in 2004 no, that, was a, that was a fun game but it had really nothing to do with the bard's tale it was like a comedy rpg which is an interesting idea um it was kind of body some of the humor has not aged well but um yeah it was definitely a different approach to a revival at the time i um, think mage's tale is the vr experience bard's yeah, tale yeah, you're right, you're 4 right. is a straight-up sequel <clears throat> The Barstail series, like you said, kind of fell right to or fell prey to some rights issues. Um, the guy I interviewed for the, the feature for the, the site is Michael Cranford, who was the lead designer, like the original you know, person who came up with the concept for the Barnstail. And he worked with Brian Fargo and Lawrence Holland and some other people to make it happen. But it was really his vision. He did the programming, a lot of the design on it. Um, but, you know, he became less involved as, as the sequels came out uh, to the point where he didn't really have as much to do with the third one. That was more Rebecca Heinemann's uh, creation. And he had a big falling out with 
Brian Fargo and Rebecca Heinemann and so forth. And it was really ugly. And he gave a presentation at GDC this year, which is when I interviewed him, that it, it, it involved a lot of contrition, I think, on his part. And him coming to say, like, I got bad advice from lawyers and from people who I thought had my best interests at heart. And they poisoned my friendships with the people I'd worked with. And it's something that he really regrets now. And it is a shame because, you know, even putting the personal elements aside, uh, it really derailed the Bard's Tales of franchise to the point where, you know, after the Bard's Tale 3, there wasn't anything to do with Bard's Tale until 2004. And it's only now that we're getting a Bard's Tale 4, like 30 years after Bard's Tale 3. Well, Bard's Tale 4 is really neat because it's a throwback to the classic first-person dungeon crawler that we kind of know and love. Uh, it looks amazing, and it's kind of reminiscent. <laughs> this is perhaps a bad example, because Return of Zork ultimately was not a great game, but it has that same sort of elemental appeal of finally seeing locations that you always kind of imagined in kind of this big, beautiful visual detail. For Return to Zork, it was literally, you got to see the, the house, the, the house from the first moments of the original Zork, you got to actually see it, and that was very exciting in the mid-90s. And now with Bard's Tale 4, you're seeing these familiar locations from the original game uh, in full polygonal glory. So, yeah, that's pretty right. exciting. And, and that's that's a big part of the Bard's Tale, the original of Bard's Tale's, Bard's Tale's appeal, is that the entire thing did take place in a city, as opposed to just being a dungeon or being spread across, you know, a land full of little towns with like three NPCs in them who would give you a clue and then you move on. The bar cell took place in a city called Scarabrag, uh, which has nothing to do with the historic city by that name, which I think is in Ireland. Um, but it's basically the city itself. It kind of works like the dungeons. It's a 30 by 30 grid and you get around in a first person perspective and you map it as you go. But instead of being full of combat, it's full of, you know, shops and buildings and pubs. And you have to talk to the NPCs there and, you know, read books and that sort of thing to figure out how do I get to the dungeon? Because the dungeon is is scattered throughout the city. Like there's, you know, three floors over here and four floors over there. And each one is, you know, each entrance is kind of hidden behind a wall of, of riddles or other cryptic things that you have to solve. And so... I feel like you can make an argument that The Bard's Tale is the first RPG to create a real sense of place, which I think is something that not enough RPGs do, but when they do it, it's it's like it really kind of sets the game apart. Um, you know, if you look at Final Fantasy, you have in seven, you have Midgar, which is kind of a place, even though you're, you're pretty much treated as a dungeon. Final Fantasy VIII, you have the garden, which is pretty much your home base throughout the entire game, and you're always going back to it. And, you know, that that comes out of Scarabry in The Bard's Tale. And to me, that that was really, you know, not just the visuals and the, the better, you know, better dungeon design, but just that sense of place is what The Bard's Tale really brought to the genre. Well, the, Bard, the first part of Bard's Tale trilogy, the remastered version of Bard's Tale, is out tomorrow as of the release of this podcast, Jeremy. Oh, yeah? yeah okay. So I'm just going to choose to believe that this this timing was totally intentional on our part. Uh, no, it wasn't. But <laughs> this does happen to me a lot. So, hooray. 
All right, Jeremy, thanks for coming on the show. We'll have you back really soon for part four of your ongoing evolution of RPGs series. All right, Nadia will probably want to be around for that one. All right, till then, talk to you later. Okay, it's time to do the thing that we've been doing, which is the Top 25 RPG Countdown that we've been continuing on. My God, we're already on to... Number 18, and number 18 on the list. You've probably been wondering when this one's going to pop up. Here is a clip from that. The Wanderer. Yes, it was... was The Wanderer. Yes, number 18 on this list is Diablo 2, <laughs> a game that might be controversial with some RPG fans, because Diablo, as I've been told, is not really an RPG. Which, whatever, it's an RPG, screw you. In fact, <laughs> a lot of the most formative and important things that you see in the RPG genre came from Diablo. Isn't that true, David Craddock? It is. It is so true. And Diablo is so true. It is it's so much an RPG. There are stats. There are there well, are there you go. Levels. Stats. There Boom. are stats. We're, we're all done. Yep. Go home, pack it in. Good podcast. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Good night. I mean, it's very DNA stems from the RPG genre. I mean, when they were trying to make this game, originally, I mean, I feel like we've talked about this at some length in, in past podcasts, but originally when, uh, when David Brevik wanted to make Diablo, he was thinking of Rogue. He was thinking of the roguelike genre, and the roguelike genre stemmed directly from the tabletop RPGs of yore. Yeah, and, and it's funny, because even though they didn't know each other at the time, uh, Dave Brevik's fellow Blizzard North co-founders, Max and Eric Schaefer, were kind of on the same page. While Dave was um, very precariously handling his college course load while being obsessed with roguelikes, Max and Eric were making D&D campaigns. And, you know, roguelikes are really about dispensing with story and focusing on d dungeon crawling. And Max and Eric were making D&D campaigns uh, Eric was making them, Max and his friends would play them, that were just about, as Max put it, we just want to hit skeletons. And that's kind of like, that's what Diablo is. It's really taking RPG tropes, kind of eschewing all the sorry stuff and getting down to the purity of, of combat and encounters and, and all sorts of crazy items. Yeah, I, I like Doc a lot, but he recently made a generalization that I felt necessary to push back upon, and he was contending that JRPGs aren't really uh, RPGs because there isn't that strong dialogue choice uh, role-playing element. And I would contend that Dungeons & Dragons, if you're looking at it as an RPG, is like kind of a yin and yang thing going on, right? On yeah. the one hand, yeah, you do have light, you have role-playing with the characters, but the real meat of the game is crawling through dungeons uh, maximizing your stats, getting loot, equipment, that kind of thing. And uh, JRPGs have that uh, with their first-person dungeon crawlers and how it has it with Dragon Quest and, you, and Final Fantasy, and you have that with Diablo and Spades. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I wrote about this in, the, in our Diablo 2 article on the site, but I, I feel that player choice is at the heart of, of of RPGs, and whether that's player choice through through dialogue, branching dialogue trees, and defining your character's motivation and relationships, or whether it's 
something as superficial as do I want this sword or this club or deeper, what are my character skills, what is, what is my build, what am I working toward? I think that RPGs are predicated on on player choice. That's that's really, you know, whether there's a strong story or barely any story at all, if if you're really focused on player choice, I think that's a role-playing game. All right. Well, let's go back to 1996, I believe, 1997. The Blizzard North team, who had just been purchased by Blizzard, had finished up Diablo. Diablo was a hit. They took a break after some brutal crunch, and then it was time to get back into the trenches with Diablo 2. Uh, a few years ago, uh, on Diablo 2's anniversary, I did a big old oral history of Diablo 2's development, and if there was one thing that I really got out of it, it was that making that game was hell. <laughs> Yeah, uh, a lot of that was because everyone at Blizzard North was very passionate about this game. I had so many people tell me, um, as a side note, I, I just successfully kickstarted my, my Stay Wild and Listen book 2, which gets into Diablo 2. Um, they told me that, you know, we're all very passionate about this because it's exciting to, to work on a game that everyone is anticipating. But it was also, you know, nobody really kind of turned off the faucet and said, all right, no more features. We have to lock this game down and ship it. But on the other hand, uh, the, you know, you had a lot of crunch, but maybe that crunch and everyone's ambition would not have led to features like mercenaries hiring companions to fight alongside you, which was a very late addition in Diablo 2. Yeah, they just kept piling on and piling on the systems in Diablo 2. Uh, famously, they added skill trees, they added socketed items, they built up the, 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 multiplayer they added to the the quest the character classes and as a result it ended up being the diablo kind of experience that we have come to associate most closely with the series and still holds up extremely well today there are a lot of people who still play who play diablo 3 diablo 3 is much better now but i think a lot of diablo fans would say that diablo 2 is the definitive entry in the series I would agree with that. In fact, a lot of critics call it the best sequel ever made, which is uh, it puts it in rarefied company. Um, I think that Diablo 2, I think that a lot of fans feel that way because, you know, on the one hand, I think the most important element of Diablo, and it's it's not loot or randomization, but it's it's the feedback, and I think Diablo 3 has great feedback. The action of, for example, playing a barbarian, clicking on a fallen, and just punching in the face and sending it flying across the screen, that feels really good. And that is where Diablo 3 benefits from, from modern technology, modern as of six years ago. But Diablo 2 has that player choice, you know, with things like skill trees and, and equipment that you get in, at just the right pace, uh, enough to form a bond with an item and use it for maybe several hours before you get something better and, and kind of reluctantly replace what has become a trusted friend in, in your sword or your staff or whatever you're using. There's so much player choice in that game. I think that one area of Diablo 3 Blizzard never really managed to fix was, you know, when the game shipped and, and they were kind of, um, the kink in the hose was the real money auction house, sometimes you wouldn't get items often enough. Whereas since then, you often get items at such a rapid clip that even something awesome like a legendary weapon is, is replaced within 20 or 30 minutes. You almost can't bond enough with it. You're just meant to, get, meant to keep those numbers going up. Um, Diablo 2, through skill choices and through equipment that you use for a good while, you really 
bond with your character and the choices you make reinforce and, and strengthen that bond. Well, that's the thing with Diablo 3, right? I mean, they had all of these ideas about what they were going to do with it. They were trying to turn it into even more of an online platform than Diablo 2. And a lot of their decisions or the, their creative choices can turn out to be completely wrongheaded. And a good chunk of Diablo 3's first year was spent backpedaling as fast as possible. Yeah, it's um, and I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. Like I, I really enjoyed Diablo three, but you're right. That first year, I like Diablo three so much that I thought really hard about putting on this list just yeah. to kind of make a statement of being like, no, Diablo three has come onto its own, has a fan base, it's good now, but come on, Diablo two is better. I mean, here's the, here's the thing: you can still walk into a lot of big box stores, and Diablo two is still on shelves. I mean, well, how, really? How, yes. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. How many games, how many consoles, how many pieces of computer hardware, how many publishers and developers has Diablo 2 seen come and go? Uh, that's pretty incredible. I, I don't know that the same will be said for Diablo 3 because I, I feel that Diablo, I, think, I feel that Blizzard Entertainment is working on Diablo 4. And again, Diablo 3 is not a bad game. They're not looking to bury it, but I think they are looking to create a Diablo where they understand out of the gate, okay, this is where we messed up last time, and here we're going to create the best Diablo game ever now. Um, th there was a lot of Diablo 3 that they could not backpedal, that they kind of just had to bolt on, and it worked, but Diablo 3 is a lot looser game than 2. For example, one thing I, I've never really liked about I mean, it has pros and cons, is that you can swap out your skills anytime. What that means is that if you and I both have uh, a Witch Doctor, and I'm like, oh, Cat, I love your skill loadout. I'm just going to switch to that loadout. There's really no permanency. There's no attachment to my character and the choices I've made. And a lot of people will argue, well, in Diablo 2, there were all sorts of builds that weren't viable. But th those comments tend to come from the, the very vocal minority, and they are a minority statistically, of the min-maxers who, who say, this is the perfect way to build your, your necromancer or what have you to finish every difficulty level. Well, sometimes making a build that's really quirky and weird and experimental that isn't meant to last beyond anything but a, a normal difficulty playthrough is the fun. Uh, Diablo 3 doesn't really let you do that because you have to play all the way to character level 60 just to get all the skills that you may want. It's, it's, it's this weird push and pull, and I, I really think Blizzard is kind of looking forward to going back to the drawing board and, and putting a Diablo 4 out of the gate on the right foot. So Diablo 2, I was at the original Diablo, the conceit was basically, I mean, if you've ever played Torchlight, for example, uh, it's kind of the same thing. You're going from a top level, and you're going down and down and down and down into the very heart of darkness. It's very, it's a rogue, it's like a roguelike, right? Only it's in real time. And you've written uh, in the past about, like, the decisions to make it a real-time game, which sat so badly, poorly with so many people because in the 90s real time was a bad word among hardcore <laughs> uh, pc gamers or whatever uh but yeah so you, it's the same thing as like basically ang band right you're going down into the ver the heart of the earth and waiting for you is basically the ball the, the bar uh, balrog right i mean it's yes. diablo is a balrog yes. and and then diablo 2 initially you're in tristram again right but it expands the scope so much, right? The first time you are in the desert, the, the first time, like, you are, the story has been expanded dramatically. 
as they take the conclu- as they jump off from the conclusion of the original Diablo and continue from there. Which, by the way, I always love the story of how they didn't make the cutscenes. The cutscenes were made separately. Yeah, <laughs> and then. <laughs> They were watching the cutscene that ended the game, and it had the uh, the adventurer cramming the gem into their head, and they were like, what? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. I guess we're rolling with this now, because there was actually, according to Eric Schaefer, there was an early version of Diablo 2 where every player was kind of going to be the Wanderer, and then they said, well, that ending kind of, kind of uh, we need to scuttle that idea, and, and they went in a, in a different direction. So the original Diablo had kind of the the super architects, right? Uh, archetypal characters. You had your your paladin and your rogue and your sorcerer. And then uh, Diablo 2, uh, so the Diablo expansion added to that with the, the monk and the barbarian and the bard. But then Diablo 2 uh, really, it expanded the canvas, right? I mean, you had your Amazon, you had your necromancer, and the necromancer was always both, I would say, popular and controversial in many respects. Um, in addition to the paladin and the sorceress, and then later on you had an assassin and a druid. And I, I feel like those are the, well, aside from being the prototypical RPG class types, I feel like they're the classic Diablo classes as well. They're, they're classic Diablo classes, and the thing that really made Diablo II's heroes distinctive was, as you said in one, you have the, the fighter, rogue, uh, sorcerer archetypes, but there was really very little difference between the classes. It was almost like uh, what a lot of modern gamers might associate with Dark Souls or, or Demon Souls, where you can pick a, any class, but if you level up the right stats, you know, your fighter can become a spellcaster. Diablo 2 kind of made player choice begin right out of the gate with the class that you pick, because if you're a barbarian, you have access to 30 skills that only barbarians can use. Same applies to the Amazon, the Paladin, uh, the Druid and the Monk, and the Expansion. And, you know, unless you were lucky enough to, say, pick up a piece of armor that has an 18% chance to set off uh, Frost Nova when you're hit, which is a Sorceress skill, only the Sorceress is going to have Frost Nova. So what that meant was that, you know, you and I can both play a Sorceress, and depending on the skills we pick, because you only get one skill point per level up, uh, which means there's never enough to learn or to master every single skill, you, your sorcerers could be vastly different from mine. So tell me some other ways that Diablo 2 really kind of raised the bar from the original Diablo. I would say that the the gameplay pacing was the biggest. Um, you you kind of covered the structure. Diablo was what Blizzard North referred to as a vertical game. You start on the surface and you go deeper, deeper, deeper underground to hell. Um, Diablo 2 was a, a more horizontal game, right from the, the rogue encampment where you start. Uh, you are running around in fields, and the key word there is running. In Diablo 1, <laughs> uh, the fastest that any character moved was a brisk, oh, geez, there's a pack of demons after me, and I better get going, walk. In Diablo 2, you are running, and the the open areas and the fact that you could sprint, that combination made for very different gameplay. You know, in Diablo 1, it was much slower paced, and because you were always inside, you could do things like, you know, wake up a few monsters and then lead them back to an open doorway and filter them through that checkpoint. In Diablo 2, if you were open... 
uh, or if you were outside and you were like 90% of the time, monsters could surround you, they could run and chase you. So even though it was a much faster pace game, you still had to be careful about how many enemies you rustled up because bigger areas means more enemies and running means faster enemies that could, that could give chase to you. In addition, I feel like Diablo 2 put a lot more effort into longevity in the way that um, in, in the way that you wanted to keep replaying it at higher difficulty levels uh, with your friends, whatever. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. This was the first instance where you kind of had seasons. If I'm, am I right? You are. You are correct. Uh, seasons were added after the fact, but yes. Um... So the season-based gameplay where, you know, the online ladders would reset and everyone would race to, to start a new character and level them up to the, the max character level of 99 as quickly as possible was a thing. Probably an even bigger thing, uh, and ironically, one of the reasons Diablo 3 was criticized shortly after it's released was uh, item runs. You know, a lot of players would communicate online and say, hey, we noticed that Mephisto or Diablo or in the expansion Bale they drop the best items, so here's the fastest route to those bosses and the quickest way to kill them with these different character builds, so you can just loot them for the best items and you know try to finish off maybe that that set you're trying to to put together. Um, that was a, a source of fun because after you beat the game three, four, seven times, you want to get together with your friends and you want to go and do Bale runs or Mephisto runs, and that was a lot of fun, especially while you were waiting for the next ladder reset. Yeah, it really encouraged people to experiment as much as possible for the most optimal of builds. Uh, one of the big differences between Diablo 2 and Diablo 3 was that Diablo 3 had absolutely no replayability out of the gate, which was completely ludicrous, actually. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you could replay the original campaign at higher difficulty levels. That was definitely a thing, but there, it did not have the randomness of, say, Diablo 2. No, it really, um, and it took a while for it to add that element. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because um, the randomness in each game has actually kind of diminished. Diablo 2 didn't even have the randomness of, of Diablo 1. For example, uh, in Diablo 1, your quests are uh, randomly drawn from different pools. Maybe you'll fight the Butcher, maybe you won't. Um, Diablo 2 had static quests, but that actually worked to the benefit of player choice because you know, okay, in Act 4, I'll get two skill points after I kill this certain this certain unique monster, and I can plan to drop those points into this skill and that skill. Um, but it, it's really funny because Diablo 3's replayability kind of came after the fact. You know, I think, I don't remember if this was released with the... Um, expansion pack or shortly before in the in the big patch that really breathed new life into the game but the replay value in diablo 3 came from adventure mode but even then you were just still sticking with the same character there was really no reason to kind of get excited about reading about your friend's new barbarian build and roll a new one which was really the fun of diablo 2 after you finish a build you get tired of a character there's always some crazy new build to, to try and you have to start from scratch which is really important because you know in Diablo 3 sure you can just kind of swap out skills but you don't have that connection of earning each skill using it learning how how it plays nicely or not so nicely with the other skills you've chosen Diablo 2 when you start a new character you're learning everything from the ground up you're earning your skills from the ground up and that kind of you develop a rhythm that is completely unique to to each character that you play. Well, as we alluded to, Diablo 2 almost killed its developers, <laughs> and, and it got delayed multiple times. It finally came out, 
it was extremely buggy. It didn't work very well. Yeah. It, and they were like, that's it. We've solved the cheating problem from the first game. Because <laughs> Diablo was a pioneer in many respects in the way that it introduced co-op and being able to play online with your friends. This was not a common thing back in the mid-90s. And Blizzard was so much a forerunner with Battle.net. Unfortunately, they had huge cheating problems, and they thought that they could fix it in Diablo 2, and they did not. People figured out how to cheat anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's really funny because, you know, for the time they, they were off to a good start, Diablo was riddled with cheaters because it was peer-to-peer, -peer, which meant all of the, the characters you used in multiplayer were stored on your hard drive. And, and while peer-to-peer -peer was still a, an option in Diablo 2 via OpenBattle.net, ClosedBattle.net, where your characters were stored on servers, was supposed to be, was supposed to be a, a much more foolproof way of eliminating cheating. And it didn't quite work out. But the other side of that coin is it did give rise to some, some really cool community interaction. You know, to go back to Dark Souls, because I can always talk about Dark Souls, um, that, the fun Everything of that, is Dark Souls. Everything All is the Dark world Souls. Is the Dark Souls. Diablo 2 was retroactively in, inspired by Dark Souls, I'm sure. But the interesting thing about Dark Souls, as you know, is that community interaction where you, where you learn things by, by talking with people on forums and reading wikis. Diablo 2 is kind of like that. There wasn't really an effective, for example, trading house in Diablo 2. So, although Dave Brevik did have one plan for the second uh, Diablo 2 expansion that was never released, but... Um, uh, you know, you would go on on forums and you would say, "Hey, I'm looking for you know a stone of Jordan, the most coveted item in the game, uh, the the ring that uh, all sorcerers want. Is anyone willing to trade this? I have gold. I have this set item." And it was really it was really kind of this meta game that joined uh, seasonal ladders and and boss runs and item runs in Diablo 2 as being a, a way to uh, increase the game's longevity long after you'd finished it. Yeah, uh, and then. So they went and made the expansion pack, and once again, they went into full kitchen sink mode, which uh, you can thank David Brevik for that, because as always, video games are a collaborative effort, but perhaps his shower thoughts, his shower ideas were somewhat legend. Oh, they definitely are. So one side note, uh, the expansion pack for Diablo 2 was almost somewhat something of a wild card, because even though Diablo, and especially Diablo 2, were known quantities... Eric Schaefer and Dave Brevik, who were kind of the, the leading the vanguard of Diablo design, were not involved in it at all. They were two members of the company who were absolutely sick of Diablo by that time. Uh, Max Schaefer actually headed that up. Uh, but Dave Brevik's shower ideas, as you said, really did cement the foundation of Diablo 2. It was Dave who, you know, been playing a lot of um, uh, Masters of Orion. Is it Orion or Orion? I never say that out loud. But Moo is the popular acronym, and he said, you know, it would be really cool to have skill trees in Diablo 2. And around the same time, Stieg Hedlund, their senior designer, was helping uh, test StarCraft for Blizz Entertainment, and he, he also made those, I don't know if you remember, in the StarCraft box, you would get those printouts of every race's tech trees and the building dependencies. Uh, and so man, he, that was so useful. It was so useful. I had it set up right on my desk when I was learning all the races, and Stieg said, you know, he got together with Dave, and he's like, well, yeah. Can, I just, can I just add, by the way, sorry to interrupt you, mm -hmm. uh, the feelies in Blizzard's boxes uh, were always so good. I yeah. mean, they always had those really in-depth, almost RPG source book-like uh, strategy or manuals. And the la I feel like the last time they really had that was Warcraft 3. 
where I would where I would just read them cover to cover, getting all the lore and everything. It was so nice. It was. In fact, in fact, it's another um, a way Diablo two kind of pioneered Starcraft. Starcraft Collector's Edition wasn't really labeled as such. There were three different boxes, one for each race, but Diablo two was the first Blizzard expansion where they packed in. You know, they had the map, they had the game in a special collector's box, they had the autographed manual, they had the the Dungeons and Dragons uh, Diablo two game. Uh, so yeah, there's there's another. Uh, a way Diablo 2 innovated. But, you know, Stieg, it was Stieg and Dave who kind of combined through their, their separate experiences, came up with skill trees. Another late addition uh, that came from Dave Brevik's shower ideas was, hey, what if, you know, 3D cards are becoming all the rage and we know Diablo 2 is going to be 2D, so we don't want it to be left in the dust. Well, what if we add this, this pseudo 3D mode that lets people with 3D cards, uh, I'll never forget my, my Voodoo 3 by 3DFX, RIP, uh, what if we let them, you know, make an exclusive graphic mode for them? And so almost at the 11th hour, he single-handedly programmed in the perspective mode that added this, this cool parallax effect to every item on the screen, every background and foreground element. And it's, it's a little thing, but it does add uh, some greater scope and scale to the game. Absolutely. And in addition to the skill tree, which I still think it's funny that skill trees are now seen as the... RPG element when they were originally the strategy game element. <laughs> uh, they added socketed items, another uh, thing that has become very common in RPGs and even action games like God of War. Yeah, that was uh, that was uh, Dave's brother's Pete Brevik, uh, his idea. He was talking Pete. with... Pete Brevik, the doppelganger. Yeah, the do- that's right. And uh, they, look so, they look so alike. But uh, Pete... And Stieg described this. They were just kind of chatting in the hallway, which is where a lot of Blizzard North's best meeting took place, just kind of hanging out. And and Pete, I think, had been watching the Conan movies and was thinking about gems and socketing weapons. And he and he said, well, what if we could do that, where you have gems that players can find? And Stieg was like, that's a good idea. And so uh, that, in turn, kind of led to the Herodric Cube, which was almost this little cookpot where you could toss in a bunch of items, click the transmute button, and out would pop a, an even more unique item if you followed the, you know, certain recipes, certain combinations would give rise to other items. And that was just, there's so many layers to Diablo 2, so many firsts from skill trees and, and transmutation to, um, you know, the, the seasonal ladders that really just kept people interested in the game. Especially because Diablo, or uh, neither of the two Blizzards, published the Herodric Cube recipes. It was just kind of in there. It was first designed for a quest, and then people realized, oh, I don't have to use this just for quest items. If I toss in, you know, three health potions, I'll get, I don't remember what it was, a bigger health potion or a mana potion, and, and people started sharing recipes online. Yeah, I don't think it, anybody can deny Diablo 2's long, uh, influence on the genre, uh, nor can they deny its longevity. And you can think Diablo, uh, MMORPGs were kind of a thing, but you think you, you can attribute Diablo 2 success to a lot of the success MMORPGs because they tap into a very similar thing, which is loot, all the loot, all the better loot, all the time. But, which, of course, that goes all the way back to the foremost, the formative days of tabletop RPGs. But I feel like Diablo 2 just really codified it in so many ways and made it what we know today. Wasn't it Diablo that even introduced the concept of rarity and loot? Uh, I believe it was. And and it's so funny because Diablo 2 made you rely on your friends to help you go on those Mephisto runs. But then, as soon as Mephisto died and, and vomited up all those items... All alliances were off. All bets were off. It became a Luke mad click fest. That's right. That's right. Like 
that's one area where Diablo 3 was definitely superior when you play multiplayer. Any item that spawns in your game is only seen by you, so you don't have to race to click it before your your friend from a second ago, now your now your rival, uh, can vacuum it up first. Um, but yeah, it, it's really cool because Diablo 2 really codified a lot of multiplayer structures. For example, in Diablo 1, we could play, you and I could play together, but there was no party system. So if, I remember I, I played a game, one of my first games, and I played with these two guys who were really high level, and they just went down in my dungeon and started killing everything. And on the one hand, it was like, oh, gee, thanks, but I'm not getting any experience. In Diablo 2, you shared experience if you were in a party, you shared gold if you were in a party, and the trade-off was that enemies become stronger. I remember that that really ominous message would pop up. It would say, you know, cat joins your game. Diablo's minions grow stronger. But the cool trade-off for that was they're worth more experience. So it really behooved you to work together with your party to clear levels. Yeah, and, and then with uh, Diablo 2, another thing, fundamental aspect of RPGs that it taps into is tabletop RPGs, or the RPG genre was built on the concept of partying up with your friends and delving deep into a dungeon and playing with your characters and playing a playing a role uh and everybody would pick a class that kind of suited their personality right diablo 2 took all of those elements and really streamlined them into a game that everybody just kind of understood on an intuitive level it took rpgs from this extremely like deep, dark, hardcore place and made it just fun and satisfying and interesting to play through. Just you would get that dopamine burst every time you clicked the mouse button. But it wasn't stupid. I mean, Blizzard has always really done an amazing job of balancing that accessibility in hardcore. And, and it's such a cliche to say that, but I mean, I feel like you have to say that with Blizzard. And I think Diablo, maybe maybe as much as maybe even more so the world of warcraft really emphasizes that you know it's it's true um i'm a firm believer that blizzard is not an innovative company they're not and i don't mean that as oh, a, as a never, knock against they've them. never been innovative no no they're very iterative what they do is they take a concept and they spit shine it until it just shines so brightly as to as to blind you and and you know everquest and, and ultima online for example both blizzards Work would grind to a halt for days, sometimes weeks at a time, because they were obsessed with EverQuest. But one problem everyone agreed on was that, you know, this is really fun, but the only reason we're able to enjoy this is because we're insiders. The game was very difficult, very arcane and esoteric, and, you know, that's one thing, that's one area they look to fix in World of Warcraft. It's very easy to pick up, but then, once you're hooked, then they start adding the layers of complexity. And Diablo 2, and Diablo 1, but more so 2, is like that. You know, Diablo is is great because you can you can kick your feet up on a desk and play with one hand. You can just play with your mouse. All you need to do is click. But then you start having to make choices like, well, what stat do I want to upgrade? And what, more importantly, what skills do I want to learn? Do I want to keep investing in Fire Bolt? Or should I start leveling up Firewall and take advantage of the synergy between the two? That's when, you know, once you're in, once once you understand the game because it's so simple to pick up, that's when Diablo 2 really starts challenging you to think about your your choices and and turn bond with your character because you've made choices that until the respec option was added years later, and even then you can only respec three times per character, uh, you could not go back on. Yeah, and, and then another thing of, 
as usual, I've said this again and again on this podcast, uh, one of my metrics as much as possible is longevity, and I don't think anybody could question Diablo 2's longevity. No, I mean, I, I have played that game since, since, uh, since day one. And 18 plus years later, I am still, I play it, I play through it at least once a year. I am still excited about character builds. Just today, before we talked, I was Googling crazy Diablo 2 builds. I think that is verbatim what I searched for. And there were all sorts of like, hey, here's a necromancer who just uses poison dagger. And that is, that is going to be a really difficult challenge on nightmare level and up. But it's something you can do. It's something I've still never tried in over 18 years of playing. It's something I'm looking forward to trying. And that really, everything hinges on on just that that call, that siren's call of Diablo 2 to experiment and try this new item, try this new build, try this new skill. Yeah, absolutely. You know, okay. I think every game developer has gamers on it, but I've met David Brevik, and that man, <laughs> even today, he just loves games. Yes. I mean, he's an indie developer, not because he's trying to strike it rich, or he's got like this giant like ambitious dream that he's ever been he's always been trying to do he's doing it because he likes games and he enjoys making them and he's just kind of noodling away on this thing that he's been making right i mean he's just right. doing it because he can because he has the he's fortunate enough to be have the privilege of being able to do kind of whatever he wants you know what's he going to do in his old age he's not going to go run a business he's not going to go uh, go golfing he's going to make games and that that fundamental appreciation of the medium is really infused in his work and you see it in Diablo and so many of the absolute best games are made by people who are just ridiculously passionate about games I mean so many other games there are so many games these days that you see that are very clearly made with a well, by business people, right? By people who are like, yeah, whatever. Like, we're just going to take these popular concepts and we're going to monetize them and uh, make some money and we'll ride a development team into the ground. But from the very start, I, I feel like the people at Blizzard North were gamers making games for gamers. They, they absolutely were. Everyone at Blizzard North was a student of the game, of gaming. And they, they had a game room there. And, you know, it's funny. Everyone, down to a person, would admit that, yeah, you know, sometimes they would maybe spend a bit too much time playing games. But they always took something away. You know, when Zelda Ocarina of Time came out, they were saying, like, hey, you know, wouldn't it be cool if, if we could go to a desert and if we had a desert in our game? You know, everything they play was not just for fun. It was, you know, taking inspiration, kind of, kind of stealing or borrowing or refining the very best ideas and making them work in, in Diablo's world. And you can really, there's so much love in that game. Yeah, and... And you can see it in the way that they really stuck with Diablo over the years. They weren't content to ship the game and go, well, we did our best. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll put out an expansion and it'll add some token content, but whatever. Now, they were determined to really get it right. And, I mean, my God, they were still putting out patches as recently as just a few years ago, if I recall correctly. I mean, that's how how long they stuck with Diablo 2. And this is just a common thing with Blizzard games. They don't they were really on the whole online platform thing from the very early start. They they really were. And I mean it's funny. I, I believe StarCraft one is the cutoff point. Uh, this might have changed over the last several months, but if you go on Battle.net store, you can buy 
Starcraft and Diablo 2. You can't buy Diablo 1 or even Warcraft 2, which is, you know, many considered, like Warcraft 1 was good, Warcraft 2 was great, and, and kind of helped solidify Blizzard's reputation, but you can't buy that game anymore. And the reason is Blizzard knows, hey, Starcraft and Diablo 2 especially, those that's in the bedrock of our company's DNA. People still want to play those games. People are still playing those games. Uh, Diablo 3's announcement, what was it, 10 years ago, I remember that people were so excited about that because it had been uh, eight years or seven years since Diablo 2's expansion and, and nary a word about the series. The game, Diablo 2's Battle Chest, shot back up to bestseller list. Box copies, digital copies, Amazon, NPD, uh, and people are still playing it today because every, you know, every so often, uh, StarCraft, Diablo 2, or Warcraft 3 will get a patch and boom, millions of people are, are back in. All right. One thing we always do on this uh, series is we choose to we ask what is the best moment, and I ask you, David, what is the best moment of Diablo Two in your mind? The cascade effect of the Necromancer's corpse explosion spell. You you're running amok with an army of minions. Your skeleton cuts down. Well, you you maybe you run into an army of quill rats or fallen of zombies. One falls. You click corpse explosion. Blood and guts fly, and it, that corpse explosion kills two more zombies. So you explode them, which kills four more zombies. So you explode them, which kills twelve more zombies. The you know within like ten seconds, you're sitting there. Your skeletons are kind of standing there, their bones clicking and clacking, and the screen is just covered in in giblets. And it's just such a satisfying spell. There, it might be the most satisfying skill slash spell in the entire Diablo franchise. That really sums it all up, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> we've been sitting here for the past 35 minutes just being like, man, Diablo 2 is the best, isn't it? <laughs> but So it's there's not a lot to summarize, but yeah, <laughs> Corpse Explosion. There you go. Uh, before we wrap up, I, I do want to throw out one really quick honorary mention uh, mm -hmm. that I think could just as easily slot into this list. Now, that's Path of Exile, which is by Grinding Gear Games. And you, they, they like Blizzard, are very iterative. They've taken the ideas established by Blizzard North back in the day and built them up into something that has really become very special and very uh, successful in its own right. Have you played Path of Exile, David? I'm sad to say I have not, but I've heard so much about it and how it's kind of picked up the torch from Diablo 2 and, and also Torchlight 2, which is kind of a Diablo 2 clone. It's really incredible how much they just continuously churn out content in that game. It's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. And it has its own lore. It has its own aesthetic. But it's also absurdly complicated. <laughs> it's, it's insanely huge skill tree. Like That's, that's its uh, calling card is its uh -huh. ridiculously, insanely complex skill tree. I need to try that because I've heard so. Yeah, I, I've seen screenshots. And it's of the free skill to play. Tree. It's quote unquote free to play done right. As they uh, remind me every time I meet them, and I don't mean <laughs> to mock them. I'm just saying that like that's their like marketing tagline. Um, and yeah, so you can play it on you can play it on Xbox. You can play it on PC. It's free to play. I would recommend checking out. It it really does feel like it's picked up, picked up the torch from Diablo two. The torch light from Diablo two. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. okay, yeah. All right, uh, David, thanks so much for coming on the show, and please remind us where can we find you and tell people how they can contribute to your wonderful Kickstarter. Yes, uh, you can find me on Twitter at David L. Craddock. Uh, I have a link to the Kickstarter there. It was successfully funded, so uh, stay well and listen. Book two, Heaven, Hell, and Secret Cow Levels, 
will be out in June 2019 in time for Diablo 2's 19th anniversary. All right, David, thanks for coming on the show, and we're going to continue on to the mailbag. All right, thanks to David and Jeremy for coming on this episode of the show. It ended up tying together a lot better than I was expecting. I mean, sometimes things just work out like that. But let's continue on to the mailbag. Dog Nozzle says, man, that header image. This game leans so hard on the manga aesthetic, referring to number 19 on our top 25 RPG countdown. That was Fantasy Star 4. It's pretty funny that in 1995, they were still doing the weird VHS barbarian movie box art thing for the US release. Must have been the very tail end of that trend. And Funny Color Blue posted comparison shots of them. And wow, man, yeah, like that original Fantasy Star 4 box art in 1995 was really bad. Uh, It looks like Conan the Barbarian. It's a very 1980s barbarian look for sure. Anyway, this is a game is a legit classic, Dog Nozzle says. A flower at the end of one of the branches of the RPG family tree. It's a shame that they never made another game in the series. Don't at me. I think Shane would be upset about that one. Valenska says, Fantasy Star 4 is right up there with FF6 and Chrono Trigger as the absolute top tier 16-bit RPGs had to offer. I might put it at the very top on some days. Much more than a sequel, I'd love to see remakes of the Fantasy Stars which just smooth out a lot of the inconsistencies and mechanical rough spots. The Sega Ages remakes of 1 and 2 are fine, but feel a bit cheap and don't really get rid of the grind. Well, three, 1 through 3 have so many fantastic ideas, but revisiting them now is a little painful. 4 at least has aged beautifully. It's a shame that the series ended right as it was hitting its stride, but I guess there's worse things than going out at your best. It's preferable to milking things to the bone with unnecessary sequels and spin-offs anyway. Yeah, I mean, Final Fantasy continued into Final Fantasy VII and managed to do very well for itself, but look at what it is now. Uh, some might have said that maybe dead is better when it comes to Final Fantasy. Maybe it should have ended with Final Fantasy VI, who knows. But then we wouldn't have gotten Final Fantasy IX, would we? Or even better, Final Fantasy VIII. Sarge Smash says, As someone that didn't really get heavily into the Genesis until the Dreamcast came out, I went bonkers and bought most of the RPG library on eBay. Fantasy Star IV was undoubtedly the best traditional RPG on the system and can proudly stand among the 16-bit giants. And Super Shinobi says, Nice to see a Genesis RPG on the list. I don't think most Genesis gamers thought of the Fantasy Star Shining Force games as a consolation prize, though, as JRPGs were still kind of a niche genre in the early 90s. I was a big Genesis fan back then, but managed to miss both the series, although I was aware of them, and they were highly rated games. Yeah, it's true. Shane and I were talking about how the Genesis was sort of the dude bro system back in the early 90s. Very American... And there's a reason that it didn't do as well in Japan as it did over here. I mean, you, uh, so much of what was important to the Genesis was stuff that often appealed to Americans like Madden and sports games and the shoot 'em up genre and that kind of thing. Of course, shoot 'em ups were very popular in Japan as well. But you, you see what I'm saying. Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat feels like such a Genesis series despite being an arcade series i feel like it really made it big on the genesis but super shinobi adds final fantasy 7 on the ps1 is probably the first jrpg breakthrough hit that even non-rpg fans were into indeed maccom 26 asks what happened to the axe of the blood god sample starting the show the last couple weeks i hope that's not been axed 
how else will I know that I've switched over from Retronauts? You know, I've been intentionally leaving that out over the past couple weeks because, I don't know, I've been doing this podcast for three and a half years now, if you can believe that. This show started in early 2015, and every, all like 165 episodes have featured that thing. And I just, I wanted to change it up a little bit. I've even thought about getting a new theme song. But I think for the time being, unless there's a weird groundswell to bring it back, I think I'm going to leave it off. Rushdog says that uh, the trend continued a bit longer, referring to the barbarian art style and pointing to the Suikoden in one box, which, oh, yikes, oh my god, these bad box art from the mid-90s and the mid to late 90s, and it's just so much more, so much of it. Darklave says, Fantasy Star 4 is the first JRPG I ever played around the age of 8 or 9. For someone who could go on to be a voracious fantasy reader and JRPG player, it was an eye-opening experience. Unfortunately, my desire to see the story faster made me run away from battles, which inevitably caused me to get stuck. I would go on to run it a couple more times, but never could get past Birth Valley. Eventually, I got an SNES, access to a lot more JRPGs, and learned how to grind and play RPGs properly. I later discovered emulators and came back to the Fantasy Star 4 the summer before I started high school. I was able to finish it with a little problem. I love the style and the music of the game. It sits in that peculiarly Japanese sci-fi zone that has been an, has enough fantasy elements to keep a hardcore fantasy fan like me interested. And while this episode is coming out on a Monday, I'm currently recording it on a Thursday, believe it or not. And so there's a little bit of late breaking news as of the recording of this episode. Torchlight is back. Yes, Torchlight Frontiers has been is coming out next year on the PC, PS4, and Xbox One. I was a little skeptical of what to expect from it, especially since Runic Games, which was the spinoff from Torchlight, was shut down. But it is being headed up by Max Schaefer, who worked on the original Diablo to Diablo and Diablo 2 with Blizzard North, along with his brother and then also David Brevik and many others. Uh, it feels like a thematically appropriate way to end this episode, I think. It's pretty interesting. I loved the original Torchlight. Torchlight 2 was then picked up the torch of Diablo 2. And I, overall, they're just two really underrated action RPGs. We were talking about them a little bit earlier, I believe, in the Diablo 2 segment. So, I mean, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that, and hopefully we'll have Max Schaefer on this podcast to talk about it. But until next time, Axe of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. I'm on Twitter at the underscore catbot. My co-host, Nadia Oxford, who is on vacation, that lucky duck, is at Nadia Oxford. And, oh, by the way, we just announced this on... Uh, Twitter the other day, we're having a panel over at PAX. It's going to be part of the top 25 RPG countdown, and that game is going to be Mass Effect. Come and join us. You can find all the details over on the site. Uh, If you're going to be at PAX, come meet me. Come meet Nadia. We're going to be doing a panel, and we're going to have special guests, uh, Matt Allen, who did the World of Warcraft segment, um, and we're going to have waypoints austin walker and so it's going to be a really fun panel i am really looking forward to doing this one it's going to be saturday 5 p.m to 6 p.m 
And of course, uh, check out Jeremy's articles over on the site, his Tabata interview, his Evolution of RPGs uh, series. It's, it's all very good. So much good RPG stuff. And Nadia did a companion piece. We're doing companion pieces for all of these top 25 RPG entries, which we will eventually pull together into one really nice big feature. So go check that out. Until then, I've been Cat Bailey. And for everybody who's been on the show, Jeremy and David, and for the ghost of Nadia Oxford, uh, until next time, happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.